I was sitting there and I didn't realize I needed to stand up. It's like being on a plane and you've just landed and you got to deboard. I'm like, oh my goodness, it's here already. It's great to be with you this morning. And um, I was just thinking how I so appreciate your friendship, the many years of friendship and the support and the prayers that you have provided for my wife, Kelly, and I. And um, thank you so much. It's great to be with you this morning. We're going we're gonna to look at Psalm 139 in the sermon titled, Anxious Heart Meets Secure Love. And while we will look at the, entire, the entirety of Psalm 139, to begin with, I'm just going to read the, uh, the last two verses. And then we'll pray. Hear the word of God. Search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray. Father, we, even looking out and knowing histories and stories of some of the folks here, the faces that we put on and the smiles, but behind that, Father, we, we're anxious about so many things. And there's concerns and worries, but Father, we pray that what you promise that you bring your kingdom that Jesus has brought, not just to rescue us and take us away from this place, though that is a great thing that, that we will be with you throughout eternity, but Father, we, we pray to see that your kingdom is something that you bring even now, that we can experience great joy even in the midst of circumstances that, that may not change and that may be incredibly difficult. And so, Lord, we need you because we just cannot do this on our own. And though we try so often and continuously and habitually to do things our own way, we thank you that you're the God who pursues us, that knows us, that loves us. Uh, Nothing is hidden from you. But thank you that even though we have great and rich theology, that, that that theology communicates to us very practical and real comforting truth that you're a personal God and that you love us. You don't tolerate us. You actually love us. And so with your word and by your spirit, Father, we pray to see that this morning. We pray for the one who preaches, for his sins are many, and we pray to see Jesus and him only. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So this is probably a, a familiar psalm for you. It's, it's a proof text that's often used to support the pro-life movement. You know, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, as it says in verse 14. But this is a psalm, it's a psalm in which King David, under great stress, ponders deeply the personal nature of God's love, of his knowledge, and of his control of all things. And it's deeply personal and deeply practical theology in which, based upon who God is, David concludes at the very end what we've just read, that God really is the antidote for anxious hearts and that we can turn to him in order to find rescue for our anxious hearts. So, um, and that's what in these final two verses, David concludes that he can find rest in this living God, even though his circumstances may never change. This, um, This idea reminds me of a quote from Herman Melville in his epic novel, Moby Dick, there's so much rich theology bound in these classics, but now sit in with me on this because we don't use these words very often. I'll try to translate it. Buckle up. 
This is what, this is what Melville wrote. He said, but about the calmness and the comfort, even though circumstances may be challenging. He wrote, but even so, amid the tornadoed Atlantic of my being, do I myself still forever centrally disport in mute calm. Do you disport in mute calm? Meaning, you know, the analogy of a ship and getting off, and even though there's, there's great chaos and storms around, there's a calm in the center with the Lord. And he says, do I myself ever for, forever centrally disport in mute calm? And while ponderous planets of unwaning woe revolve around me, deep down and deep inland, there I still bathe me in eternal mildness of joy. Now, I needed Jimmy Buffett to translate that. So this is what Jimmy Buffett said in his book, one per- in his uh, song, One Particular Harbor. You know, are you familiar with Jimmy Buffett? I think he went to school at that college, university down the street or across the street. In one particular harbor, Jimmy Buffett wrote, but there's this one particular harbor sheltered from the storm where the children play on the shore each day and all are safe within. And I think they're saying the same thing, that that even though we experience great storms and there's great anxiety, um, what we'll see from this text is that we can can find great calm, as David did, um, in looking to the Lord and pondering the, the deeper truths, the real practical and personal um, aspects of the nature of God. David prayed, search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any way offensive in me and lead me in the way everlasting. A few years ago, a friend of mine, referencing this, uh, this text, he said this. He said, this is the most frightening and dangerous prayer you'll ever pray. It's like asking God to perform surgery without anesthesia. And it's, uh, what he meant was it's kind of like praying for patience. You know, when you do, or if you do pray for patience, God will provide many, many opportunities that test your patience by introducing challenging events and people into your daily life. Have you heard that? You know, if you want to pray for patience, you know, you're going to run into these great opportunities. That's what my friend said he he saw these verses as, and he, he saw them as something that was unsafe. But I want to propose to you this morning that, that this is the safest prayer you could ever pray, and it is the cure for anxious hearts like yours and mine. And in this psalm, we're offered great, great hope in seeing who God is. And so in a cost analysis ratio, looking at, at this analysis, we would say we can't afford not to pray this prayer and asking God to expose for us the places in which we habitually turn and trust and the loves that we think as we build our kingdoms and live our daily lives, we can't afford not to pray this prayer. But so that you can kind of understand that, those concepts and get to that conclusion, I want to look at two things in this text as it's related to the anxious heart. The first is the characteristics. We look at the characteristics of an anxious heart and then look at the cure for an anxious heart. And in Presbyterian sermons, there has to be an alliteration. The characteristics and the cure for an anxious heart. So Knox mentioned, and many of you know that I've worked for Mission to North America's disaster response uh, for many years. I started down on the coast when Hurricane Katrina 
made landfall, and it was a part of a church plant called Lanyap Presbyterian Church. We planted a church and had a disaster relief site, uh, started a construction company to build homes and repair homes, and plant the church through those relationships. And um, five years of, of daily um, walking with people in the midst of that. And then uh, over the many years, I was deployed to go to different locations um, when there were tornadoes and hurricanes and to make assessments and work with church leadership. And a funny story, when there was a tornado in 2011 in, uh, in Tuscaloosa, and um, it was quite devastating. And some of my friends that got to know Nick Saban said that God used that storm and the death of some football players in order to bring him to faith in Christ. But I was with a bunch of RUF students as we were kind of formulating, doing some assessments, and they were laughing and telling the story of once the power came back on and the radio broadcast, the first thing they said was, Bryant-Denny Stadium is okay. The statue of Bear is fine. Priorities, priorities. But I've spent many, many years working with disaster response, and most recently... This past August with Hurricane Ian that came through Florida and really created great devastation on the southwest coast. Um, That was where it was reported, but there was flooding throughout much of of Florida, and I was asked to provide assessments to the PCA Church Spruce Creek in Port Orange. It's a kind of a bedroom community of Daytona Beach. Spruce Creek had six or more members whose homes were flooded, and these were communities that had never flooded before. And so my first trip over, as I'm driving down, I turn down the street, I've got my GPS, I'm looking at the GPS on my phone, and I turn on to one of those streets that you've probably seen where the contents of the home is at the curb because the water has come in, and everything inside the house, from the carpet to the furniture, to maybe a few feet of drywall, depending upon how high the flooding waters came. All of that is at the curb, waiting to be taken away. And so I had a goal. I was headed to meet leadership of this church at a home of one of the members, but I stopped. Uh, fortunately, there was no one behind me on, on this, uh, this community street, but I stopped in my tracks, and I turned, I turned the music off that I was streaming, and I wanted, I needed, something was happening, something was stirring deep within me, and I had to laugh because, you know, I'm a guy, and we're not really the best with emotions sometimes, and I stopped, and I was like, what is that? What is that, what is that going on inside of you? What is that? I was like, oh, I laughed. Oh, that's an emotion. You're feeling sadness. You're, you're feeling grief um, at the loss of these folks that have lost so much. But I smiled and laughed. You know, like little children who just use their emotions, sometimes we would say, use words, use words. Sometimes we're not really good at that because we go from one thing to the next and we never really make space for God or for Jesus to really speak with us. And in that moment, I needed to stop because I habitually am working through my schedule and the tasks and everything else I have to do. And so... It was, a profound, it was a profound thing, but I had an anxious heart. And I know you all have anxious hearts, and you're probably like me, that you go from the next thing to the next thing and don't often stop or make space or have margins for God to speak in these profound ways. And then we continue on with anxious hearts and just press, press down, like I had done for so many years, um, doing this disaster relief. It's just 
push it down and move on to the next thing. Um, but I began to pray. I began to actually ask God. It was the beginning of kind of a revival in my heart because that whole day and then the weeks that followed and the months that followed, I began praying this prayer. Search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any way offensive in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Um, and I will tell you, God is faithful to this prayer. And he has been revealing so many habitual patterns that I've failed to see. I don't know my heart well. I think I do. We think we do. But we participate with God in this renovation of the heart. And through Jesus, we have the access to the Father. And I will tell you, he is faithful um, to, to come and to rescue anxious hearts. God is faithful, and he's been revealing my anxious thoughts and satisfying me with himself, and he desires to do that with you as well. But this is not our typical prayer. Uh, we most often pray what I call the Star Trek prayer. And when I explain this, you'll understand the Star Trek prayer. You know, if you're familiar at all with the TV series Star Trek or the movie franchise, um, there's always a prayer to Scotty, I think he was the engineer. You know what that prayer is? Beam me up, Scotty. Beam me up, Scotty. And it's always within the context of great difficulties and often life-threatening challenges. Um, another way of saying it is, get me out of this mess. And that's typically the way we pray to the Father. Um, we don't want heaven to come down, even though Jesus taught us to pray to the Father. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We it's a natural reaction to want to be taken away from our problems, but God wants to rescue us and bring the kingdom and bring himself to us to satisfy our anxious hearts with himself. Um, and you and I were created. We were created. The reality is we were created to exercise dominion over creation. We have a high, high calling, and often we settle for so much less. Like C.S. Lewis said, you know, we are like children um, who would desire to play with mud pies in a slum because we can't understand what it's like to participate in a holiday at the sea. We're far, far too easily pleased. Um, but we were created to have dominion over creation, to expand God's kingdom and God's glory throughout every area of our lives, with God at the center, being obedient, looking to him for strength and comfort, but most importantly, to be in a deep and abiding relationship with our loving Heavenly Father. But the problem is that sin, is, it's so complex. You know, we have definitions for it, but we really don't understand it. It's so complex, it's, sin has just junked up everything, our minds, our bodies, our wills, and it's much deeper than any of us are aware of, and we can't do this on our own. We need Father, we need, a, we need the Father, we need a prayer like this, we need God to participate. But the thing is, even as C.S. Lewis said in the uh, screw tape letters, it was one demon talking to another and how to get to, to get the Christian um, sidetracked. You know, he said, God, you know, our father, meaning Satan, he wants to ravish and just consume. The enemy, meaning God, he wants to woo. So God, God has us open our hands that clutch to all these different things that we, we hope in and trust in. He doesn't force our, our hand open, but he exposes the things that we look to. That's where our anxious hearts come from, the things that we habitually turn to and trust in order to release the grip and see and turn, repent, 
and, and see the beauty and the love that the Father has for us. Um, but sin has, has really messed us up, and it's much deeper than any of us are aware of. Now, instead of seeking the, the kingdom of God, our natural inclination is to, is to build our own little kingdoms. And what could possibly go wrong with a bunch of people pursuing their own goals? Can you imagine that? Have you ever experienced anything like that in a church? Surely you're immune from it. Churches don't have problems, do they? But what could possibly go wrong with individuals pursuing their own little individual kingdoms? Well, they pursue, it creates great chaos and anxious hearts. But God wants to turn those over and to move in and to take control. Our anxious hearts have their origin in anxious minds and, our, and their minds that are not set on the truths about God. And that's what we'll see in this text in a moment. I want you to listen to, um, to how James in his letter describes the anxious heart and how it's related to an anxious mind that's not secure in the deeper truths of God and the personal nature of his love. James in chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, wrote, But when you ask, so when you pray, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. So an anxious heart, the anxious heart that David was experiencing was because he was being pursued by his enemies and he speaks of the darkness that came about. But as he looked at the character of God and as he pondered those, he came to the conclusion that God can be trusted. But our hearts are anxious because we seek the good life in many, many things other than God and our heart And our mind can be secure only when we fix upon the Lord. So those are the characteristics of an anxious heart. And here's the cure for the anxious heart. We're going to look at the verses, verses 1 through 23. In verses 1 through 23, David, he stops everything he's doing. He creates margin in his life so that he can reflect on the deep personal love, control, power, knowledge of the Father. He turns off the music and he stops, and he reflects, and he ponders on these deep truths of the personal nature of God. So we're going to look at these, these verses. You begin in verse 1. It says, O Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You, you know when I sit down, and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me like a loving father to a loving son or daughter. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such, he's, and then, now he just stops. He's blown away. He's like, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I, I can't attain it. I can't understand the depths of it. Where, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. So he said, there is nowhere I can go that you are not there. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, 
and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. It may appear dark with an anxious heart, like God is absent. I mean, that's typically what we think, right? When we're going through difficult things, we say, it seems like God is absent because we're not getting what we want. But, you know, that is the place where God's grace really moves in the most. It's, it is in those places where he seems the most absent. He's at the most work. And I can tell you this from doing Hurricane Katrina relief and other relief. It is the crisis of, of literal storms, but then figurative storms are the places that God, you know, releases the grip, the white-knuckle grip that we have on building our kingdom and trusting in so many other things than him. But so even the darkness, he says, is, is, is light to you. What great comfort these words are that God knows us, that he loves us, that he sees us, and he's before us, he's behind us. And this is a, a filial love of a father to a child, a great comforting love. You know, and sometimes we don't think that God really loves, he tolerates us. You know, it's kind of like, I think it's, it's a Bruce Springsteen song. He says, you ain't a beauty, but hey, you're all right. You know, that's not the way God thinks of us. We are beautiful and God delights in us. He rejoices in us and he loves us deeply as his children through Jesus. And because our f- sins are taken away and we're given the righteousness of Christ. And he continues on. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. If you're like me, how often do you stop to ponder these great truths? If you're like me, I mean, I'll go to music, I'll go to reading, I'll go to my to-do list, to my schedule, to my meetings, and then to Netflix when I get home. Without margins to ponder these great and deep truths. And God calls us to pull back and to see the beauty And we can find rest for our anxious hearts. But he goes on. He says, wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance and in your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. That should blow your mind. How precious... To me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. More than the sand. You know, the other aspect of looking to God is being thankful. Being grateful because then you realize that your, your blessings and your benefits that you experience are not from your own hand, but they're outside of you. And you give thanks and a mind fixed upon the Father and upon who he is and his great love and what he's done and as he's described here. If I count them, oh my goodness, they're more than the sand. I have so much to be thankful for. That will still an anxious heart. I awake and I'm still with you. You haven't left me. You're with me. Oh, that you would slay the wicked. This is where we, you know, scholars have said Within the context of this, this hymn, David was being oppressed by, by his enemies and the enemies of God. And he says, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They, they speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? 
I hate them with complete hatred and I count them as my enemies. And so in this oppressive state, he, after going through and pondering all of these deep realities of who God is, David can do nothing else but, but turn to God and say, therefore search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any way offensive in me and lead me in the way everlasting. But again, we're all very similar in that we look to the things that are around us rather than looking to, to the Lord. And... Um, the New Testament writers, they prescribe the same kind of antidote for, for anxious hearts. Um, we see this in the Apostle Paul in Colossians, in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. I'll read this for you, and you can look it up later as well. It's a great comfort. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming, and in these you too once walked when you were living in them. So the anecdote for the New Testament writers that's throughout is to, is to look beyond the horizontal the vertical, to see and to ponder these great truths, to, to create this calm in the midst of the storm where the one particular harbor is with the Lord. But we need to look in the right place because we are led where we look. This is a reality, it's a principle. We're led where we look and we're shaped and filled by what we worship. And they become habitual to where we don't even see it. You know, think about sometimes if and this is what I do. If, if I'm on the phone, I'm, I'm, I'm driving, and I'm talking. Well, I don't, ha- I don't hold it. So I, I've got the Bluetooth. Um, I also, is it amazing how we, we use these hand gestures and whatnot from a, decades ago? How many times do you roll down the window now? No, you don't roll down the window, but I don't hold the phone either. But it's, it's, it's broadcast on the Bluetooth. And um, I just forgot where I was. Oh, so I'm driving. So I'm driving, and, um, and I realize in 30 minutes, I went from the one place where I was, and now I'm home, and I have no idea. It was like I didn't even, well, I wasn't really paying attention, but it was autonomous. Have you ever done that? Where you just, you know, so, so these are the habitual ways in which we live, and God wants to uproot these, and they, he does that, and he, he satisfies us with himself, but it's through reflection and looking upon the realities of who he is so that he can, he can free us. Because we do look in the wrong places. In, um, and I want to highly recommend this author to you, uh, Dallas Willard. Get a hold of anything that he's written. He's very, very helpful in what's called spiritual formation. And um, the recommendation to create margins in your life um, so that you can hear God. And so what does that look like practically? Like maybe in the morning I'll want to reach for my phone first and look at my texts or check emails, but to stop and say, Lord, I don't need to look at that right now because it's going to probably be a little bit of comfort or look at social media or look at whatever, Instagram, Facebook, whatever. Um, but to say, Father, you 
only you can satisfy me. But it's making the margin. It's creating these little, these little deaths for, to create opportunity for more resurrections in, in my life. And that may mean also not speaking words that, that might, in a conversation with someone, to say, well, you know, I know so-and-so. Or I know this. Or the urgency to have to say something. But it's to die to saying that because I want to elevate myself. But to say, Lord, you see me and you know me. I'm seen, known, and loved. I want to rest. I don't need to say these words or to find my hope in the approval of man. These are just little things that, that and we'll talk about this tonight when we look at um, Matthew 11. But we look, where we look, we're led, and where we're led, we're, we're shaped by, by that worship. And so we need to look in other places. Dallas Willard wrote this in Living in Christ's Presence, Final Words on Heaven and the Kingdom of God. Human, he wrote this, Human beings cannot help looking for someone to teach them how to live. This is why it's so important for those of us who want to follow Jesus and for those of us who help to lead churches to know that Jesus is the best and only one from which human beings should learn how to live. We all learn somewhere. We learn first from our parents, then our coworkers or bosses, the media, the culture, and people around us. The Bible says that all attempts to do things that don't start with God will betray us. In other words, they, they lead to anxious hearts because they can't fulfill and satisfy us. Only God can. And because of the complex nature of sin, we, we don't have an accurate knowledge of ourselves, of others, and of God. I've laughed and said, I have repented so many times, but at the moment, I sure think I'm right. <laughs> And uh, have you ever done that? Do you do that? It's, uh, we need something from the outside. We need God's grace to move in. I'm going to close with this illustration. Because um, we don't have the ability in ourselves. And this is a, that's why this is such a great prayer. I, was a stu- I graduated from Florida State University in Tallahassee back in 1985. And um, one of the things that I would do with, with some of my fraternity brothers during our leisure time, you say in a fraternity, wow, you guys have all kinds of leisure. But we would go scuba diving in, in the sinkholes and caverns and caves that are around North Florida. Now, the guys that I would dive with were much more experienced than I was. But we would go into these sinkholes, and some of these caves would go from one city to another. Now, I never did go through the caves, but these guys were master divers. And those are dark places. It's cold, and you can get lost. But I would start to descend down to 50 feet, 80 feet. And the deeper you got, the darker it was. The greater the pressure, your oxygen doesn't last as long either. And I would start to go to the cavern, which is the opening before you get to the cave. And I would always turn back. I couldn't even get into the cavern. Can you imagine if you're claustrophobic in any way, going into a cave with a scuba tank in your mouth? Frightening. Well, going down deeper, getting the pressure, it's cold, I would turn around in fear and I would have to surf, go, kind of come, come up a little bit more to the more familiar environment. Um, and I think that, to me, that's an illustration of our inability to assess our own heart and to rescue ourselves, which we try to. When we see the things that are in our hearts, we turn, we turn. We can't handle the pressure of that. And, but we need an outside source and we have a loving God who pursues us with a loving desire to rescue us. And we've seen this in verses 1 through 21. 
And so, just like David, how can we not conclude with the prayer? Search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any way offensive in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the safest prayer you will ever pray. Let's, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much that you're a God who is be, so beyond our imagination, but we have your word that, that describes who you are and we don't understand completely, but we need you in your word to reveal yourself because, God, we, we grasp at so many things and we trust so many things and we trust ourselves and we look to culture, we look to coworkers, we look in the wrong places. Father, I thank you that you invite us to look to you and that you invite us to participate with you. You woo us, you love us in order to release the grasp that we have on the things that can't satisfy in order to reveal your, who you are, that you're an awesome God, that you know all things, that you, you love us in spite of your knowing that nothing is hidden from you and yet you don't turn away. You move towards us even more and so we thank you that, for the cross for our Savior Jesus who did not turn away but moved towards our brokenness and continues to do that. So we, we thank you for the kingdom that Christ has brought and pray that, that you would continue to reveal that kingdom with joy and peace, the shalom that Jesus promised and that though one day we will leave this place, even now we can experience great and abiding joy and we pray for that. I pray that for myself and for my friends here. And we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.